Um, Before I dive into our text tonight, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, I believe firmly that you have stuff to say every time that we get together. And I know every soul in this room is in a different space. Um, I know we're all coming out of a different headspace from our day. Some of us are distracted. Some of us are tired. Some of us are excited, chomping at the bit. Pray that you just meet us where we're at, Holy Spirit. Allow us to lay um, the baggage that we brought in with us down at your feet, and I pray, Spirit, that you would move and you would speak and you'd encourage and you'd rebuke and you'd do all the things that you do, that you know how to do um, in your way. And we pray all that in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so it's going to take me a while to get to our text tonight because I feel like there's some context I need to build up for us before we walk there. But my question for you on the front end, have you ever worked for a really bad boss? Yeah? I want to, like, show me your hand if you've had a bad boss in your lifetime. That's probably close to half, all right? That, by the way, would be a great conversation piece. So as you're, like, doing meals together in your small group and stuff, those would be great stories to tell each other, awesome stories. And in my opinion, if you have not had a bad boss, you're missing out. Because, seriously, because you don't know what a good, like, good boss is until you've worked under someone who is not a good boss, okay? My worst, um, I won't tell you where it was, but it was long enough ago that I think I can actually use their names. I waited tables for a while. It was a short season of my life because I, (laughs) it was the the only job I've ever had that driving to this place, I just had a pit in my stomach. Like, I don't want to go there. You know that feeling? Like, when you have a really bad job, this was that job for me. And, um, and it wasn't so much, I liked waiting tables, I didn't mind that it was busy, I liked to meet people, like all of that stuff, but we had these two different general managers, these GMs of the restaurant, one was named Dave and one was named Sharon, I will never forget their names until the day that I die, okay? And both of them were just, it's difficult for me to say, like as a Christian man, to stand up in front of you and, and use kind words, they were difficult human beings, okay? Very difficult human beings. They love to scream all the time. Dave, like, he wouldn't, so the the restaurant had all these different restrictions. As a server, you couldn't do anything. If someone said, hey, my bill is wrong, I couldn't change it in the computer without Dave's permission. Like, he had to sign off with his little key card, but Dave wouldn't do that. And he would be really ticked if you'd ask. He would also be really ticked if you didn't do it. So you'd follow him around being like, hey, Dave, I need this changed. Dave, I need this changed. And he'd be kicking garbage cans, being like, I don't have time for this. And he'd be marching around. And you just have to keep following him, being like, Dave, please, Dave, please. At any given moment, there were two waitresses crying in the break room at all times from Dave or Sharon, one of the two. I'm not exaggerating or joking. That was just a constant reality of the place that I worked. And not that this matters at all. I wasn't even going to share this. But you know how, like, sometimes people will sarcastically say, hey, thanks for sharing? You know, like, thanks for sharing, but it's the phrase, like, thanks for sharing. There was a guy I worked with at that time. Every time he he heard that, we worked together there 20 years ago. And if anyone says, hey, thanks for sharing, he says, and thanks for Dave. He finishes it with that (laughs) sentence. Like, it scarred both of us so much that 20 years later, we're still using their names. Have you ever worked for somebody like that? Whew. The beautiful thing is when you have, then you know when you're in a healthy situation because you have the context by which to judge all of that. Now, tonight, like, I know that's a goofy way for me to start off because what I want to talk with is like, what I want to talk about tonight is like 40 steps above that. I want to talk about how the, that there is evil in authority in this world. 
Like, that was a really hard work environment for me because it was toxic. It was gross. It was mean and mean-spirited and angry, and that's why I had that, that, that ball on my stomach. Every time I drove there, it was just awful. But what if we're talking about real authority? That's just the general manager of a restaurant. What if we're talking about real authority? What if we're talking about what's happening right now, what's being played out in Russia and Ukraine? Like, what if we're talking about people dying? I don't know if you've been following along, but man, my heart has been wrenched the past few weeks. Wrenched, seeing children <laughs> getting treatment for pediatric cancers that are having to be flown to different countries and the trauma that's going on in those families. Last count, I saw at least five million people, refugees from Ukraine right now. So what, what happens when we're talking about oppression at that level? We're not just talking about a silly restaurant. We're talking about that, that level of pain. I, I had the unfortunate pleasure, I'll never forget it, I don't want to do it again. Um, when I was about your age, I was 21, uh, was just finishing up college, I did a couple months, um, I spent a couple months in Eastern Europe and um, doing, doing some missions work in English camps, but part of that time we went to Poland, and when we went to Poland, we visited Auschwitz, and I don't know if you know even if that name means anything to you, Auschwitz was one of the largest death factories in the world um, in World War II and it, literally a death factory. Um, it's where they designed facilities to exterminate Ju the Jewish people. And I, I, I walked in not really fully understanding what we were doing and not really fully prepared for the level of evil that I was going to experience there, but walking through places where there's, I, I can't even be graphic, you guys, tonight, it would just be too triggering, but to be reminded of the mass scale of human death that occurred there. Gas chambers designed to kill people ovens designed to make those people disappear. And in the first 10 minutes, I was so horrified that I, I, didn't, I couldn't even process. Like emotionally, I just, I hit over, like the, the override on this, and I was like, I don't even know how to, to deal with the information that's in front of me. And then it was just like hours of that feeling. Horror after horror after horror after horror. Evil that was in huge authority at that time. But it's not always on that grand scale. I mean, it's played out. It's played out all the way down to the restaurant. You know what I mean? From, from Nazi Germany, Hitler, all the way down to a, a professor in your classroom who just loves to humiliate or shame or whatever else. But again, where we have power and where we have privilege, we also have abuse of that power and that privilege. And so what I want to get at tonight is how do we live as followers of Jesus in spaces where evil has authority. And all of us are broken in some way, all right? So if you're given authority, you're gonna misuse it in some way, shape, or form. I'm not saying you'll be Hitler, but I am saying because we believe, we truly believe as part of our story that I'm fractured and broken, when I am given authority and power and influence and privilege, then I also have to own up to the brokenness that comes along with that. That's where our text is going to take us tonight. And I want you to understand that when it comes to oppressive kingdoms, I mean, when we're talking about Ukraine and Russia, you might be like, oh, that's so unique and that's so right now. It is not so right now, okay? We've, it's been, the world has been oddly silent for a while in some ways in terms of war. Because when you look at the grand history of humankind, we do a pretty good job at war. Just in the time of Scripture, all right? Like if I'm, if I'm flipping through Scripture, um, if you're in Exodus, we're talking about 
the, the, the people of Israel being enslaved in Egypt, right? That's Moses' whole story of rescuing the people from slavery out of Egypt. You flip forward a little bit and you have the Assyrian Empire that comes in and completely occupies. And then you have the Babylonian, you go back to the Babylonian Empire. You go a little bit further and that's what's happening there. Then it's the Persian Empire, you guys. Like, they're never their own country. There's always this occupying force that comes in and says, nope, you belong to us. Then it was the Greeks. Then shortly after the Greeks, it was the Romans. You guys, that's the biblical history all the way up until Jesus. So when Jesus is walking the earth, do you know who was in charge? The Romans. And the Romans were a brutal, bloody empire. Caesar was their king, and you didn't question Caesar at all. They believed that he was partial deity. So they worshiped Caesar. And Jesus, when he walks around, it is under Roman authority. It was the Romans who killed him. It was the Romans who had him crucified. That was, that was their death penalty. They were the ones who flogged him. They were the ones who crucified him. So Jesus was no stranger to this idea of what do we do with oppressive authority when it sits under us like that. And again, before we get to our Life of David text tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about who Jesus was and what he thought about it. How did Jesus think about this? Okay, Because Jesus did have some things to say about the Romans Jesus had this idea that he preached and taught that he was a part of a heavenly kingdom. He didn't just see this earthly kingdom. He didn't just see the Roman kingdom. He also believed and preached constantly about a heavenly kingdom. I'm not going to go through all of these just because I don't have time tonight. If you want to, grab it with your phone, take a pic, and you can look at them later. But he said specifically in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. He's talking about his own kingdom. This kind of talk got him into trouble, by the way. I belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. All these other references, in Ma- this is just in Matthew. I'm just pulling from that one gospel. These are places where he's trying to explain to his disciples and everyone else what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's constantly telling stories saying, hey guys, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Let me describe it to you. Do you get the idea that this is a priority to Jesus? It's not just Rome. There is another kingdom with a king. And I'm a citizen of that kingdom. Jesus tells us over and over and over again in his ministry. Even when he stood in front of Pilate. I mean, like we're in the Easter season right now, right? We're like Easter is just in a, in a few weeks. And so that, that season where Jesus was beaten, Jesus was arrested and then beaten and flogged and then crucified. After they had flogged him, after the Romans had flogged him and he's bleeding like crazy and he's about to be put on a cross, he's standing in front of Pilate and Pilate says, hey, I have the authority too. And Jesus says, you don't have any authority except that which has been handed to you. Even in that moment with the Roman Empire in his face, Jesus was like, there's a kingdom that I belong to that you don't understand. Even in that moment, the king recognized a different kingdom that he was a part of. And Jesus believed that those two kingdoms, that kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, they overlap. And I need you to hear that tonight. If you're starting to to veg out on me, hear this. Jesus believed that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth overlapped. And I've said this before, but it's almost like there was this curtain that separates the two. And Jesus just kept ripping that thing open and dragging miracles from the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of earth. Our theme for this entire year is awake. That was the idea. He was like, you got to wake up to this heavenly kingdom. That's my priority. 
And remember what he prayed with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching them how to pray? He says, God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's cluing us into the idea that we get to do the same thing, that we get to drag this kingdom of heaven stuff into the kingdom of earth. That's part of our responsibility. And if we don't get that up front tonight, the rest of tonight's not going to make sense. I just need you to know this was the language that Jesus spoke in. There is a real kingdom of heaven. There is a real kingdom here on earth. But the difference between the holy God Jehovah who sits on his throne as king and Caesar isn't even comparable which is why Jesus could stand in front of Pilate and say, do your worst. Do your worst. I have a different kingdom, and you don't have authority in that kingdom. Now, this raises so many questions for us. How do we walk in two different worlds? How do we as followers of Jesus, as New Testament believers, how do we live kingdom of heaven values in, while we're living in a kingdom of, her, of, of earth? What does it mean that those two kingdoms overlap? We have politics of this world. We also have God's values. The two are not the same. So what do we do when we have political parties screaming at us, saying that we need, we need these specific values, and we're trying to understand the difference between these two things? What do we do? How do we live? How did Jesus do this with the corrupt Roman Empire? Jesus, you guys, was obsessed with inside-out change. Let me say that again. Jesus was obsessed with inside-out change. Here's what I mean by that. Political change is what the Jews expected of Jesus as the Messiah. Because the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah for a really long time, and do you know what they expected? They expected a political leader to rise up as the Messiah and to grab Rome and Caesar by the neck and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as a political force. Israel. Jesus was the suffering servant, was not what they were waiting for, was not what they expected. They didn't expect their Messiah to be grabbed by the Roman Empire and slaughtered by the Roman Empire. They thought it would be the other way around. But Jesus made it clear when he was teaching that he was about inside-out kind of change. He didn't come to start a political movement, you guys. Matter of fact, there's a moment in Mark that I absolutely love. Let me see if I have the passage here. Um, well, it's, it's in John as well. That's the, that's the one that I quoted here, John 6.15. There's a moment after Jesus feeds the 5,000. So he's done this incredible miracle. He multiplies food. Everybody is going crazy. They've witnessed this miracle. They've been fed by him. The crowd's going insane. Do you know what it says in John 6.15? It says that they approached Jesus and intended to make him king by force. They're like, here's our political leader. He can perform miracles. And you know what it says Jesus did? It said he withdrew quietly to a quiet place. He ran away. So the people are screaming. They're like, Jesus is going to be our king. And I'm, if I'm a disciple, I'm like, yeah, this is the time. Jesus, you're king. Like, get out the banners right now. This is our, I'm a part of the Jesus party. Nobody's going to beat him in this moment. And Jesus runs away in that moment. Runs away. Why? Because he didn't come for political change. He came to change us from the inside out. Inside out kind of change. Individual kind of change. To give you a new heart. To give you a new mind. That was his priority. Look at the way he did life with the disciples. One at a time. 
living with them, talking with them, helping them understand how the kingdom of heaven intersected their lives. There's a moment even where it says, uh, I don't think I have this on the screen, but it says the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested because they thought they could get him into trouble. And they said, teacher, we know how honest you are. They're just buttering him up. You're impartial and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Do you hear the trap? They're trying to get him either to align with Rome, which is going to get him into trouble, or to step away from Rome, which is going to get him into trouble. You know what Jesus says? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he said, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to Caesar? The coin. He's like, then give the coin to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? You do. Yourself, your whole life, your person. I, and then uh, let, me, let me give you the end. His reply completely amazed them. It says, yeah, because they really wanted A or B. Jesus very rarely in those trap moments is like, sure, A or sure, B. He's like, how about option Q? And everybody's like, oh, we didn't see option Q coming. No, you didn't. His reply completely amazed them. Jesus was not here to be the political leader. He was here for inside-out change. That's who he was here to be for us. If you miss this, you might be tempted to see the church as a movement of political activism. This is not what Jesus sought. So, if I can finally, with all of that, take us to our text with David, finally. But I need to give you some Jesus context first, okay? But in, in David's life, Saul was an absolute horrific leader. And God predicted this. God told them, you don't want a king. If you choose a king, it's going to go badly for you. He's going to take your sons to war. He's going to take his daughters into his service. Your children are going to die if you do this. And the people said, we want it anyway. So God gave them the king and then anointed him and said, fine, take your king. And Saul turned out to be everything God said he would. We learned last week that he was trying to hunt David down. He threw a spear at Jonathan, his own son, tried to pin his own son with a spear against the wall. He is not a good dude. One of the chapters, we're told that he was so uh, jealous and furious of David that he had 85 of the Levitical priests put to death because he was afraid that they might be loyal to David. 85 innocent priests, God's people in, in Saul's kingdom, died because Saul was afraid that they might start an uprising. He's losing his mind, and he's got all of the power and control. Now, Here's a piece, though, you need to know as we get into the text. David had already been approved by God to be king. He had already beat Goliath. He had already started winning these other battles, and he was fighting with the army. And so the army loved him, and the people loved him, and he was growing in favor. People were writing songs about him, you guys. And the more popular he gets, the more crazy Saul gets. And that's where we land into our text tonight. Oh, you know what? I did have it on the screen. My bad. That was the previous scripture. Here we go with David. Now, some men from Ziph came to Saul at Gabeah to tell him David is hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which overlooks Jeshimon. Okay? So at this point, Saul's on the hunt for David. 
I'm going to kill him again. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hekilah near Jeshimon where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come after him in the wilderness, he sent out spies to verify the report of Saul's arrival. David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. Who will volunteer to go in there with me? David asked. So they're getting ready to sneak into the sleeping enemy camp, okay? Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother. I'll go with you, Abishai replied. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep with his spears stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. David has Saul right where he wants him. Dead. And I need you to understand this. Nobody will blink twice at this. The armies of Israel are loyal to David. The priests have started to be loyal to David. He already has the anointing from the prophet Samuel. Nobody will blink if the insane Saul dies this night and David becomes king. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday or he'll die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he's anointed. But take his spear and that jug of water beside his head and then let's get out of here. So David leaves. This is actually the second time. The second time David spared Saul's life. The first time, uh, they're hiding in a cave. David and his men are hiding in a cave. I'm not making this up. Saul, with his army, they stop just randomly in this space, not knowing that David is in the cave. Saul walks into the cave to relieve himself within an arm's length of David. And so Saul, who's completely exposed and not paying any attention at all, in that moment could have been slaughtered by David. And David chooses to spare his life in that moment as well. For the exact same reason, David showed restraint. In other words, David refuses to become evil to defeat evil. You hear me? David refuses in this moment to become evil to defeat evil. Now, you say, all right, that's the Old Testament. <laughs> In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of battles. There's all kinds of wars. It seems super foreign. Let's talk New Testament for a second, okay? It's like, all right, let's go to the New Testament because Peter talked about this. How do we live as followers of Jesus with people who are evil in authority? Peter says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You say, yeah, Ben, but what if the, the emperor is evil? The emperor is evil, you guys. <laughs> He's writing, Peter is writing under Roman occupation, the emperor was evil. He's saying, hey, follow the law. Follow the law. You want to get super simple tonight on what the Bible teaches us 
as followers of Jesus of how to live under evil authority? We follow the law. Okay, there's a problem with that, though. I know you're thinking it. Thank you for thinking it. You're right for thinking it. This is the same dude, Peter, in Acts 4, 18 through 20. They called the apostles back in. This is after Peter and John have been preaching about Jesus, and there's miracles, there's other stuff going on. They get in trouble for this. They called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter, again, same dude who wrote this verse up here, Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. All right, so which is it, Peter? Do we obey every human institution, first verse, or do we obey God over men, second verse? The answer, it's complex. (laughs) Here's the simple answer, though. We obey every human law, every human kingdom law, until it comes into conflict with God's kingdom law. Let me say that one more time. We obey human laws until they come into conflict with other, with kingdom laws. That's the way that we do it. Should Christians pay their taxes? Yes, we should. You say, Ben, I don't like that idea because I don't like what some of my taxes are supporting. I promise that they did not like, that Jesus did not like what Caesar was doing. Caesar was paying for Jesus' crucifixion with those taxes. Ever thought about that? And still he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. By the way, you've only got a couple more weeks to pay your taxes, okay? So hop on that. Okay, should we do that? We should. What else? Let me give you other stupid examples. Should Christians cheat on their exams? No, they should not. There are rules about those things, even if you can get away with it. You don't, you don't have to like those laws, but you are supposed to follow them as followers of Jesus. I get, I get often asked by students who are on campus because there's a, there's a drinking culture. So they'll be like, I have somebody come to me and say, hey Ben, is it okay for me to drink as long as I'm not getting drunk? Because the Bible just says we're not supposed to be intoxicated. And I'll say, how old are you? And they'll be like 19. It's like, man, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but no, you should not. And they say, why? And I'll just point to, to 1 Peter 2.13 and be like, we're supposed to obey the laws of the land. And they're like, I think that's a stupid law. And it's like, well, then you should lobby and change it. I don't know. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. This is simple to me. I don't have to like it. I don't have to agree with it, but I am asked to follow it, stupid as it may be. There are things you guys occasionally that Governor Pritzker will do that you don't have to like or agree with, but we are supposed to follow them unless they come into contradiction with kingdom values. And that's complex. So I want you to be careful about walking away with application tonight without having those conversations with each other or with us to be like, what does that look like when I'm caught in between those two things and I'm trying to figure out? It's complex. So Peter's words teach us some things about how we live under evil authority. And I want to hit four of them tonight pretty quickly, okay? The first one is this. Look up. God is better at justice than I am, right? So there is this idea that when I look at and trust in God, I begin to understand that he's sovereign and he sees over all of this stuff. Caesar, you guys, back in this day, deserved some justice. God can handle that better than I can. There's some people around you that have dealt you um, evil, pain, suffering, and they deserve punishment, and they deserve justice. Ultimately, that belongs in the hands of God. There's nothing wrong with human justice. I'm not saying we can't seek that out. I'm saying when you own that and you say, I am the one who meets out justice, then there's a problem that starts to happen on the inside where we begin to take what, what belongs to God and we put it on our shoulders. 
There is something, you guys, relaxing about me realizing that God is in charge in ways that I can't be, that he can take care of the people in Ukraine and he can take care of the people in Russia in ways that I can't even touch. I can pray for that. I can trust him in that. I can honor him in that. I can look up to the character of God. You know, the other thing about this is that God's ethics don't change. He doesn't change. And he can see things that you can't see. So perhaps that person that you hate, perhaps that person that you want to mete out justice on, God's like, I am writing a redemption story there that you know nothing about. And if you destroyed them in this moment, you also would destroy the redemption story I'm writing in them and through them that you don't, you're just not big enough to see. It belongs to him. And cultures, man, they shift and they change. God's ethics have remained unchanged since he created the foundations of the world. You know, the Greeks, the time that Jesus walked around in, were unbelievably, like, we think of ourselves as the progressive time. I'm not sure we got anything on the Greeks, right? When it came to, came to worshiping the body, when it came to worshiping athletics, when it came to worshiping sex, when it came to worshiping food. In the city of Corinth by itself, by the way, there was a temple to Aphrodite where there were 1,200 temple prostitutes just in the one temple, okay? We don't have any temples in Bloomington Normal with 1,200 prostitutes in them. Like, like, again, but you go from that level of progressivism to the dark ages, to the Victorian era, to the, the sexual revolution of the 70s, to our deconstruction movement today. You guys, culture has just constantly shifted. God isn't shifting with it. He's like, I stand above and beyond this. I don't change. I don't. My morals don't change. My idea of love doesn't change. My idea of justice doesn't change. I'm standard through it, and we can look up and we can trust in that. Next, we can look in. We can look in. God is very interested in personal change first. Personal change first. Matthew 19, you look at God's offer to the rich young ruler of come follow me. There's a personal offer that he gives to each disciple, that he gives to Peter, that he gives to John, that he gives to these people to come and be with him. Again, Jesus was not interested in just cultural activism. He was interested in changing the individual, and he believed, you guys, that the individual then would shift the culture. So it's not that he wasn't interested in cultural change. His method, though, was to change the individual. If I can change you, if God can transform your heart and your mind, and you begin to share that with somebody else, you know, I, like, I may be skipping ahead of myself here in the sermon, but I got to say it out loud. The Roman Empire, you guys, Jesus obviously didn't come to preach anti-Roman Empire stuff. He ran away when he was given the opportunity. He allowed himself to be crucified by the Romans, even when he could have, he could have just brought in armies of angels and wiped them all out. Instead, he preached individual change. But do you know what happens? The church begins to grow. The love of God begins to spread like wild, wildfire. Within two or three hundred years, the Roman Empire will be turned on its head by Christianity, and the emperor himself will be a Christian. It's just slow. He wants to change our hearts, and then our hearts begin to change the culture. It's not the other way around. He didn't come and say, I'm going to change your behavior as a mass group, and I'm going to try to shift culture. He said, no, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new mind, and culture will follow along behind that because I've transformed you, and then you get to work and transform each other. So don't, do not advocate for causes 
Do not advocate for causes that you are not first willing to look inside yourself. Maybe I'm being too vague. Let me be more specific. It is not okay for us as followers of Jesus to call out racism but not be willing to look at it inside our own hearts. It is not okay for us to call out the world and be like, why aren't you taking in refugees when there are people starving and blooming to normal that we don't give a crap about? Do you understand? It's not okay for us to advocate on a grand level for something that God wants to transform me in and do something personally in me and make a difference in the sphere that's around me. The love of Christ does that in us. You guys, it does that in us. But we have to look in. Third, look around. Truly see others. David refused in this moment to dehumanize Saul, to just turn him into the evil king that he could kill with a spear and be done with in that moment. He said, that's not my place. This is the anointed one. Dehumanizing is easy, and it happens a lot on the polar spectrum. I'm already talking politics, so let me just stay on that road for a second. That last election that we walked through two years ago, whatever that was, was a nasty one. There's another one coming. And each side of that loves to dehumanize the other so that you look at the friends around you and you're like, ah, less human because they don't see the world the way that I do. God doesn't do that, and he doesn't allow us as followers of Jesus to do it either doesn't dehumanize people. He does the opposite. He helps us to understand how valuable and precious they are as his children. Anything that's working you away from that does not come from God. Last, others are looking. Others are looking. When we live by heaven's standards, people notice. I talked about this last week, but I can't not talk about it again, all right? Because uh, specifically, Peter said in that verse that we just had up there, he said that by, how do, you, how do we do this? He said, by doing good, you put to silence the foolish talk of ignorant people. In other words, when we do good, when we love people who don't deserve our love, when we pray for the kinds of people who persecute us, when we meet obstinate, evil, difficult people with more love, Christ is easily seen by that. There was a law in the Roman world. Just, uh, they had all of these different, uh, different laws, but one of them was if, if you were walking down the road and a Roman soldier, if they were walking and carrying a 60-pound pack, okay, all of their weapons and everything else, their armor, and he sees you, it doesn't matter if you're on your way to work, doesn't matter if you're on your way to something important, he can say in that moment, hey, peasant, carry my pack. And you were legally required in that moment to walk his pack for one mile. So again, I don't care if you're dressed up for a job interview. In that moment, you have to drop what you're doing legally or you can be punished for it. Pick up his pack and walk his direction for a mile and then walk a mile back and then go about your day. How's that sound? <laughs> like, aren't you glad that you don't have to do that on a daily basis? All right, so when Jesus was asked about that, He's talking about this in Matthew 5. He says, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, that's what I'm just talking about, carry it too. Give to those who ask. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, do you know how ridiculous it's gonna be when the guy walks up to you with a big crooked smile on his face and says, hey, peasant, carry my pack for a mile. And you say, how about two? And you pop his pack on your back and you start trotting away. 
What kind of questions are going to be asked in that moment of, wait, what? Nobody's ever done two miles. Nobody's ever done a step over one mile, ever. Why are you doing this to me? When I waited tables, again, did I mention the worst job of my life? Okay. When I waited tables, Christians had a reputation. It wasn't for generosity. The after-church crowd was the worst crowd to every waiter I worked with. I don't think any of them were believers. Okay? How do I put Jesus' words into practice? If you're going to pray for your meal before you go out to eat, tip 30%. Do me a favor. All right? Can I get an amen from any servers in the room? No, seriously, you guys, if you are going to show that you are a follower of Jesus, then generosity should flow from you in ways that don't culturally make sense. Make it a priority to be generous because you have love to give, because God is transforming you. And Jesus is saying, when we do that, other people can't help but notice. Again, I know I said this last week. It's just, it's sitting in the text right there again. People will notice when we live by that priority, even when it's evil people and authority forcing us into that. How do we live under evil leadership? Paul, I'm going to give Paul the final word on this tonight because it's beautiful. Romans 12, he says this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, work hard, serve the Lord enthusiastically, rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Isn't that a good line? Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. This is what we talked about first. This is God's business. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. And if we jump to verse 21, Paul says this to us. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by what? By doing good. By doing good. How do we live under evil authority? Like this. You say, that's not fair. And I say, you're right. You're right. But wasn't that the example that Jesus gave us? Wasn't that the example that we saw from David? Wasn't that the example that we saw from Peter? Wasn't that the example that we saw from the Sermon on the Mount? That by restraint, God's love will be known in this place. And that, my friends, is how we live under evil authority. We overcome it by doing good. Let's pray. Jesus, I can talk about this until I'm blue in the face, but you're the one who gave us the example. Thank you for standing up under the oppression and brutality of the Roman government for my sake, Jesus, to pay for my sins out of your love for me. Thank you for modeling for me what it means to live in a world that isn't fair, where privilege is different for every person that's in this room. I pray that you'd help us to lay it down for each other, to love this world the way you loved it, to make ourselves smaller and lift you up. We pray all of this through your name and sacrifice, Christ. Amen.